the rest of us, let's start in uh, Luke chapter 19, if we would. Luke chapter 19. And uh, today is the day that is traditionally named Palm Sunday, the day commemorating Jesus riding the donkey and her colt through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in the prophecy of the book of Daniel, he is called Messiah the Prince, and referring to uh, this, this date, uh, a man named uh, Robert Anderson uh, at the turn of the last century, actually went through the calendars and and uh, worked out the dates. And from the date, as uh, is prophesied in the book of Daniel, from the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, the command by the king of Persia, until the day that Jesus rode the donkey through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem is exactly the number of days, the 69 weeks that are prophesied in the Bible to the very day. God is accurate in his prophecies. Amen. And on this day, um, if you listen to some people, they'll say the reason Jesus had to be crucified was because he was rejected by the Jewish people. And I would challenge that that thought. The reason Jesus had to be crucified was because the prophecies in the Bible said so. Jesus had to fulfill the prophecies. It was prophesied that he would be born. It was prophesied who his family would be. It was prophesied the life that he would live. So many prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Yet the greatest one was the resurrection. And for there to be a resurrection, there first must be a crucifixion. And so I want to challenge you that the the Jewish people were willing to accept Jesus as their king. The Bible tells us, and I hope to preach on this verse next Sunday, that Jesus led captivity captive. And that's one of those little phrases that always just kind of, what's that really mean? And uh, I'm uh, hoping and praying that uh, that it will be the topic of next Sunday's sermon on, on Resurrection Sunday. But uh, if you were here for the Sunday school lesson, uh, most of everything that we've done was an introduction to the sermon this morning there, but we'll go over a few things. Verse 9, uh, 37 of Luke chapter 19 says, And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, a lot of times we skip over the next verse. And when he was come near and beheld the city, 
I'm sorry. And when he was come near, he beheld the city. And what's that next word? Wept over it. What I'd like you to understand here is, as the crowd was rejoicing, as the earth was literally reverberating with the sound uh, of these people praising God and lifting up glory, Jesus came down that little hillside from the Mount of Olives and they they tell us that the entire city of Jerusalem uh, spreads out in a panorama before you. And Jesus stopped and beheld the city. And while everyone was rejoicing, he was weeping. Do you get the contrast there? Now, we need to understand something. Jesus accepted the praise and the worship of the multitude. When they were calling him the king, the son of David, what they were doing was they said, we believe that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. We believe that he is the Messiah. Jesus accepted that praise and that worship. That's why the Pharisees were angry. Because that kind of praise and that kind of worship belonged only to God. And yet here was the mass of Jewry. Uh, a, A multitude of Jewish people from all over the world. And when they heard the stories of Jesus, they said, who could he be but our Messiah? How could anyone but our Messiah raise someone from the dead that had been in the tomb for four days? That had just happened a few weeks or months before this event. And the Bible tells us that even many of these Pharisees and Sadducees had stopped uh, being part of the Pharisee club and had followed Jesus because of the great miracle that he did. And they were joining in this praise and this worship. And yet, as Jesus came around that last little curve and beheld the entire city of Jerusalem... While they're rejoicing, while they're praising, he is weeping. Because Jesus is looking just a few years down the road. And uh, we'll read the testimony of Christ here. Look at verse 42, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and shall compass thee round and keep thee in on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. This was, for just sake of simplicity, simplicity of calendar, 33 A.D. It would be less than 37 years. The armies of Rome would surround the, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem and lay siege to it and then breach the walls and destroy 
the city. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, the Bible is very clear that if Messiah is to come, he must be able to prove his lineage to the household of King David. Well, do you know when the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, they destroyed all of the genealogical records of the Jewish people. No living Jewish person today can declare their heritage authoritatively back to the times of the New Testament because those records are gone. They can get pretty close. and In fact, if your last name is Cohen... Uh, they believe that that's, uh, you're one of the Levites and different last names. Uh, they have traditions, and, and, but they cannot prove it because the records are not there. Yet, Matthew chapter 1 gives us the genealogical record of Joseph of Nazareth, which he passed on to his son, stepson, we might say, because he was not the earthly father of Jesus. But in marrying Mary, he gave Jesus his heritage and his name and his lineage. It goes all the way back to David and then to Abraham before him. And the records are preserved in our scriptures. The people were willing to accept him. But you see... The real truth of the triumphal entry is not what people thought about what was going on. Would it not be more what Jesus thought about what was going on? I mean, you say, preacher, I agree with you there. What Jesus thought about that day should be a whole lot more important about than what we think about that day. And here's what Jesus thought about that day. He wasn't rejoicing. He was weeping. Because even though he accepted their praise and he told the Pharisees that were with him that if these people would not, if these people stopped praising him, that even nature itself, the, uh, the stones that have no voice would immediately cry out into praise because God had ordained this day to be praise and worship to the Son. It was going to happen. But Jesus was looking into the hearts of the people who were lining the streets. And most of them had this kind of thought in their mind and in their heart. Oh, I hope he's the Messiah. I hope he's the one. I hope and, and, and I want to believe that he's going to set us free from Rome. But that's not what Jesus came to set them free from. Amen? A far more savage and tyrannical master had them under... His thumb. It's called sin. They were enslaved to sin. And yet they couldn't see 
that it was going to take the cross to set them free. That Jesus had not come to set up his kingdom on earth, but he'd come to set us free from the bondage and the slavery of sin. And so, the first thing I want us to notice here is when we think of Palm Sunday, the first thing we think about is people waving the palms and praising God and laying them down on the ground so not even the dust was stirred and all of these things in acts of honor and worship toward Jesus Christ. That is our first thought. But God's opinion was completely different. He was weeping because of their unbelief. The Jewish people felt that their city, Jerusalem, was totally defensible, that they, they, they could not be destroyed. And so as the legions of Rome were out there camped around the base of the mountain on which the city was built, they went on about their business. They didn't have to worry about water. They had a, a water source that Hezekiah had changed and brought down into the city. And so they had more water than they knew what to do with. They had food stores for many years. They would not be starved out of the city of Jerusalem as they were before. The walls of the city of Jerusalem were very strong. They, as the Romans were out there, Titus had given his army his commandments. He said, we do not want the city destroyed. We want to preserve the temple and the architecture there as a, uh, a testimony to some of the great things that were done. But as the siege went on and on, people's attitudes the attitude of the soldiers and things begin to change. And finally, Titus sent them an ultimatum, says, we're going to destroy the city unless you surrender. Well, you know what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing at that very time? They were having a knife fight on the temple steps as to who was going to be in control of the temple. And when the Roman emissary came with an offering to surrender... They basically told him, take a hike. We've got more important things to fight over right now than you. And it so enraged Titus that he sent his soldiers in and somebody threw a torch into the temple and the building caught on fire. And the gold began to melt and seep out between the stones of the temple. And when the soldiers saw the gold, they literally tore that temple apart piece by piece and scraped the gold from the stones to put it, because that was part of their pay as soldiers when they went into a city. They were allowed to loot the city, and Jesus was seeing all this, but before the soldiers would have freedom to do all of that looting, they had to make sure there were no people left to stop them. And it was a wholesale massacre of every living thing in the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus came around that temple, listening to uh, that curve, looking down on the temple in the city of Jerusalem, he heard all the praise. But the real truth of the matter was, 
it wasn't true praise and true worship because the people had not truly accepted him as their Messiah. Tragic, is it not? And yet, could I challenge you that the parallel is still today? How many churches, call, organizations call themselves churches, get together on Sunday, and, and, and they sing, quote-unquote, praises to God, and they get all happy, and they jump up and down, and they worship God, and they say we're having a great time, and yet is there any reality to their praise and to their worship? Just telling God a hundred times, I love you, I love you, I love you. Now, I, I don't know a wife that doesn't want to hear those words from her husband. But if that's all she hears, husband, you got problems. Uh, there'd be, there better be a little action backed up to those words. Ladies, am I right? Hello? thought I'd at least get an amen out of some of the ladies there. There, there needs to be not just words. There needs to be some action. I heard a preacher give this illustration. I wish I remember his name so I give him credit for it. But the man comes in the house with a dozen long stem red roses. And he walks up to his wife and she's looking there with a smile on her face and he throws them down the table. Here they are. You said you wanted roses. I got them for you. Now, if a guy did that, wouldn't she be right in giving the roses back, thorns first? Uh, hello? That's not acceptable. And yet, we have people all over this world say, well, God made me this way and I, I just worship Him with what's in my heart. Well, when's the last time you read Jeremiah chapter 17? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Did it ever dawn upon you that God might not want what's in your heart? That He might want something a little different? That... God might want to rewrite who you are as a human being and change the things that are in there and that that change would be so radical that when Jesus tried to explain it to Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, uh, in John chapter 3, that he used the term, ye must be what? Born again. You've got to have a whole brand new life because what is in there is not acceptable. What is in there is not what I want. Oh, it may sound right. I can't remember what song that was. Oh, I think it was Blessed Assurance. We were over at Greenpoint working on the, the building over there. And at 6 p.m. quitting time, they, the, uh, uh, they have one of those big uh, bell things that plays hymns in the Catholic Church right up the street from us and they started playing Blessed Assurance from the Catholic Belfry. 
And I'm sitting there going, how in the world could they play that song? They must not know the words, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. What, what assurance? How many of you used to be Catholics? What assurance did you ever get of a Savior? You see, the world will take up the words of God. But they don't mean what Jesus wants them to mean. That's what was going on on Palm Sunday. That's what goes on every Sunday in so many places that call itself church. They say all the right things. They direct it toward the right person. But Jesus looks down in. And he says, what's going on in the heart negates everything that's going on in the mouth. See, that's, that's my problem with the newfound Christianity called the purpose-driven life, is if you don't, don't read the book, please. If you have, you have a copy home, would you just take a little advice, throw it away? It's not going to help you. Because what is in the purpose-driven life is simply this. I can use God to get what I want. That's what was going on on Palm Sunday, as they were as Jesus rode the donkey and the and the foal in uh, the colt into the city of Jerusalem, as they were waving the palms and praising him, they were saying all the right words. But when Jesus looked at the city, he said, "The things that will bring you peace, you can't see them." It was his death, his burial, his resurrection that was going to bring peace. But they would have none of it. This morning I'd like to preach the truth of Palm Sunday. You see, the truth was that the praise and worship that went on on Palm Sunday was empty and hollow and to a great point meaningless. But there were some that were doing it right. And God wasn't going to spoil what they were doing right by condemning all of the others who were doing it wrong. Do you see what I'm saying there? You have to think about that a minute. It was the little children that came up to the temple steps that were doing it right. It was the lame, I keep wanting to say lame and blind at the same time, and it doesn't come out right. But it was the, the, the lame and the blind that were normally excluded from all of the worship of the Jewish people because of their physical problems. They came up to the court of the Gentiles and Jesus healed them and gave them access to the temple itself. See, Jesus, God is willing to put up with an awful lot so that those few that believe in him 
can do right the right way. The Pharisees were all worried. What was one of their statements? Perceive ye not that the whole world has gone after him? But they would have their way. Just a few days later, as Jesus would be scourged by the Roman whip and crucified on a Roman cross. But then, Sunday morning, the chief priest had a real problem because the Roman guard came to him and said, the tomb's empty and we don't know what to do about it. Here's what we got to understand. The truth was that in spite of the fact that the vast multitude were joining in the praises, it was only a few that were truly praising and worshiping Jesus for who he is. Can we say amen to that? As we read on in the story here, Let's go to chapter 20 of, of Luke. We'll just pick it up in, in Luke here, chapter 20. And it says, And it came to pass that on one of those days as he taught in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority dost thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this Authority. Now, that's a word that we use a lot today. People hate that word in modern English, modern society. Do they not? I heard somebody say, Ah, the problem with religion is you believe you're the only one that's right. Dogmatics, I mean, that's what the problem is. Why can't everybody be right? Well, they've tried that in New York public schools, haven't they? You're not even allowed to write with a red pen on the paper anymore because be yelling at your students. If you can't add 2 plus 2 in the 10th grade, you ought to be yelled at. Amen? Uh, I'm sorry. It just ought to be. But you see, everybody can't be right. It's not possible. And we have this word called authority. Authority means that you have the right to determine what the difference between right and wrong. How many of you love going to school? How many of you are old enough to remember that that mean teacher was probably the best teacher you ever had? Would you raise a hand and say, yeah, I remember that. The one that pushed me. The one that wouldn't accept my dribble and made me go home and rewrite the paper. Not because it was a D paper, but because it could have been an A paper and wasn't. I'll tell you, those are the kind of teachers you're going to wish you had when you finish school. Amen? But that doesn't make school any easier if you got one of those. But here's what they were doing is they were really trying to ask Jesus the question who's really in charge here you or me 
you imagine the audacity of approaching Jesus and claiming that he had no authority in the temple that was built to worship him? But that's what they were doing. I've read many commentaries over the years and every once in a while you'll pick a little gem up that will help you understand where in the world or how in the world people end up at such a convoluted understanding of Scripture. He said, if you take a literal understanding of this passage, this is what you believe. I said, wow, they're right. But, we refuse to accept the simple literal understanding of Scripture because it does not agree with what we know the Bible teaches. Does that make sense to anybody? It shouldn't. But yet, that's what goes on. You see, this thing called authority... Jesus had really messed things up. He had accepted praise that belonged only to God. Don't don't let anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God because he did so many different ways verbally saying so and in accepting worship that he did on uh, on this day. He went into the temple. Do you realize that Passover was probably their single greatest money-making festival for the whole year? And Jesus blew that thing apart by throwing the money changers out and overturning the carts and sending the uh, sacrificial animals out of that area. And they had to go gather them all together and stuff. I mean, they lost a, a, a huge percentage of their revenue. They had to recalibrate all their scales, you know, you dump them over and, and all, all of that kind of thing went on. And they were saying, who gave you authority? Change what we teach. Someone was in a, uh, a church, and it's happened in many different places, and they had a painting of the old preacher from 150 years ago or something like that on the wall there. And the church had changed its doctrine a great degree. And the person that was questioning all these changes looked at the preacher and said, What do you think he would think about all this? And the preacher said, You just leave him out of it. And of course the retort simply was, It looks like you already have, doesn't it? And that's what people do with this book called the Bible all the time, don't they? You see, Jesus used that teaching in the temple to establish himself as the final authority. The only true arbiter between right and wrong. When we come together as the Open Door Bible Baptist Church to have a worship service, we unashamedly and singly Do what we do to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we say amen to that? Andrew said, when do we put the special in this morning? Well, I looked at the bulletin. I said, well, you picked our great Savior before the message. 
Uh, you can't put a special between our great Savior and the message. I mean, that's, that's what the message is about. That's what everything is about. Amen? And, and listen. Jesus didn't take time to answer these false questions. He asked them a question. It was John's baptism. Did that come from heaven or did it come from men? They couldn't answer that question because if they said of men, which is what they believed, all the people would knock them down from their position of leadership because they knew John had come from heaven. If they said that it actually came from heaven, which was the truth, then everything that they had done and lived for for the last three and a half years would be negated because everything was based on the fact that Jesus could not be their Messiah. And yet, that's what John's baptism proved and gave testimony to. And so Jesus said, I'm not going to answer your question. But I want you to think about this next thing as we think about true praise and worship. True authority was in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever had to define truth? Have you ever had to, well, this is truly the truth. Well, Jesus basically did that this week because here's the problem is when someone presents a lie as the truth. What is your alternative? Oh, we can just have alternate truths. No. It doesn't work that way, my friend. Uh, Praise God, it has not happened in a very long time. Used to be talking with people, they come, oh, oh, that's your truth. Uh, Praise God, that hasn't happened. I I really pity the next person that ever says that to me. Uh, I've got so many things stored up that I just want to unload on them. Good night. You cannot have your own truth, the fact that you possess it as a personal possession demands that it is not truth. Because truth cannot belong to you. You cannot own the facts. Only on TV shows does that happen. In in the world of Hollywood drama, uh, can you own the facts? You cannot change them. If you do, they're not facts anymore. They have become opinions. And do we not live in a world that is run by opinion? How many of you know what the textbook definition of obscenity is? There is a legal definition of obscenity. It is what society deems unfit for public uh, viewing. That, that is a, a very simplified definition of the word obscenity. Well, could I challenge you that our society has changed on what is obscene over the years? In 1929, ladies, 
If your ankles were exposed at Jones Beach, you would be given a ticket for public nudity and arrested and taken off the beach. It was in the rules. You can look them up. I'm not even going to tell you what goes on there today. You see, we go back to authority. Authority determines what is true and what is false. Now, if your authority is Karl Marx, boy, you've got some leeway to find out what truth is and what isn't because it's totally flexible. Whatever promotes what the leaders think is good is true. You have to understand that that's how people think. What does the Bible say? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What did Jesus say the night he was betrayed? I am the truth. What did Pilate say when he was looking at Jesus? What is truth? And it was standing right in front of him, wasn't it? How many of you have ever actually woke up to the fact that you were being influenced to believe a non-truth as something true? You heard something and said, wow, is that true? And you believed it. And then you got studying or did some research on it. Oh man, that's just a total fabrication. How much of what goes on in our society is trumpeted through the news and the Uh, The media and over the internet is truth that is totally, totally false. I got an email uh, this last week. It said, the seven most deadly drugs, if you take one of these, you're going to be dead. I'm sitting here going, what kind of nutcase is this? So I finally was able to find out what it was. They were wanting to sell me a subscription for $74 a year to a health nut site on the Internet. Ah! Now I know what the truth is. They want my money. That's what the truth is. They're not, and they're going to sell me some little supplement that they say will solve all the problems of life. It cures cancer and diabetes, and all of this all at the same time. Well, most of us have enough sense to know that, well, the word is hogwash. How many of you know what hogwash really is? That's what you feed the pigs, not clean them with. It's, but if you fed that to the pigs, it'd make them sick. You know that? You see... The world is full of liars pretending to tell the truth. Would you agree with that? And in the Jewish world in this week, it was the chief priest who were responsible for offering the sacrifices at the temple, the scribes and lawyers who were responsible for copying the word of God and preserving it, 
the Pharisees, who were the daily teachers in the synagogues of trying to teach people what was right and what was wrong. And these were the three leading factions in Jewish life that developed the entire nation and their thoughts. And every one of them was diametrically diametrically opposed to the truth. While at the very same time telling us what I'm giving you is the truth. Does that sound like the day in which we live? Are there a lot of people worshiping Christ that aren't doing it His way? Are there a lot of people refusing to accept the authority which belongs only to Jesus Christ, taking it upon themselves to change the Bible and, and to make up their own ideas and their own thought processes? I, I just don't get. I just don't understand where some of these people come from. Uh, I remember when I was a student in Bible college, I was trying to witness and one of the ladies looked across the table at me where we were working in the nursing home there. And she says, oh, no. She says, you know, in the Bible there where Paul says the churches of Christ salute you, he was talking about our church, the church of Christ. And I started snickering. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you Do you understand any history at all of your church? She said, no. I said, have you ever heard of Alexander Campbell? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. Well, he's the founder of the Church of Christ. There was no such organization before him. Nothing. The earliest possible date of fixing the origin of the Church of Christ is 1828. So what happened between 33 A.D. and 1828, my friend? I don't believe you. (laughs) You don't have to believe me. I'm just telling you what the history book says. You see, you've got to accept what the Bible says. Or you're not going to hold truth. Even though you call it truth, it's not going to be there. And here's the import of all these things. Jesus gave several parables, and we want to just pick some of these up. Turn with me to uh, chapter 21 of the book of Matthew, if you would. And Jesus was trying to help them understand. And uh, we're going to look... At verse 28 of Matthew chapter 21. And here's what Jesus said. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he said, And said, I'm sorry. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of the twain did the will of the Father? They say unto him, the first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward. 
that ye might believe him. And then from verse 33 to the end of the chapter, he tells another parable of a man that had a vineyard. And he let the vineyard out to husbandmen. He had trained men to keep the vineyard. And he sent to receive the fruits or the rewards, and they refused to give it. And he sent many servants, and some of them they beat up, and others they killed. And finally he sent his son. And they said, this is the heir. If we kill them, there will be no one to inherit the vineyard but us. And they murdered the son of the owner of the vineyard. And Jesus said, what will he do? It says he'll come and he'll miserably destroy those husbandmen and let out the vineyard to those that will recompense or bring the rewards in. Now, look at verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, did... Ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder." Jesus was not being kind when he said these words. There's not a smile on his face. He was telling them, you claim to be the holders of truth, and because you perverted the truth into a lie, everything that you think you have is taken away from you, and it's going to be given unto those that will follow the truth. And he said, if you'll fall on this stone, you're going to be broken. But if I fall on you, I'm going to grind you to powder. They understood what Jesus was saying. That's why they went back and they planned the episode with the tribute money and the divorce question and all of these hard questions that they tried to entrap Jesus in. But Jesus in his teaching, chapter 25 gave two more parables, and we'll end there this morning. Chapter 25 of the book of Matthew. Verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now here's the story. In those days, in the Jewish wedding was not about the bride, as our wedding is today. It was about the bridegroom. And the bridegroom would not announce the date of the wedding. They would know that it would be near, but it was to be a surprise. And and he would let people know that through the little grapevine of the community there, it's going to be tonight. And these ten young women who were part of the celebration, they got ready. Well, something happened. I mean, uh, we try to be on time with weddings, but uh, normally, if somebody's going to be late at a wedding today, it's going to be the bride's going to be late. It's going to be a problem. Going to lose a shoe. Going to do something. It's always the well. The bridegroom was late. He didn't get there on time, so they slumbered and slept. About middle of the night, midnight comes in. 
and they hear he's coming and they wake up and they relight their lamps and half of them find out they don't have enough oil that it all burned out. Here's what Jesus is giving a picture of. True salvation versus a false salvation. You know what? They were all there for the right reason. They were all there to respect the right person. They all were dressed the right way. And they were all ready. The only problem was the bridegroom took a little longer than they were planning on. And their preparation didn't carry them through. The Bible talks about those that believe, but not to the saving of the soul. The Bible talks about those that are going to say, Lord, Lord, in that day. And Jesus is going to say unto them, Depart from me, I, what? Never knew you. You see... The truth about this praise was Jesus wasn't going to stop those that were doing it for the wrong reasons because it would harm those that were doing it for the right. Amen? And he was going to accept that praise. He is the true authority and he rejected all others. And he exposed what other people held for truth for the lies that they were. And he says, you can, we, we, uh, if you read your little devotions, one of the ones was, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Well, that's not always true. Especially in the spiritual realm. Because it's easy. To pretend you're a Christian on Sunday morning in church? No, isn't it? All you got to do is dress the right way and sit the right way. And not make too much noise during the preaching. And, and if you can hold on for an hour and a half, you'll be out of here. Amen? I don't preach that long. Uh, normally. But, you see, I'm not the judge. I'm not the authority. Jesus is. And if you're saved, you've got to be saved His way. His truth is the only truth. His authority is the only authority. And His worship is why I'm here. Can we say amen to those things? The next story was the story of the talents. A talent was a weight, 75 pounds, usually of silver. Even in today's market, 75 pounds of silver would be worth a great deal uh, of money. 13 ounces to the pound. Uh, uh, Troy pounds it is in about, what, $50 an ounce? Start, start adding that up for 75 pounds. That, that's a great deal of money. And he had three servants, and he gave one five, one two, and one one. Now, what did the guy with the one talent do? He buried it, didn't he? 
You know what the Bible says? It says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Everybody has been given God's grace. The question is, what what are you going to do with that grace that God's given you? Well, I just can't believe that I'm so bad. Can't I do something? No, you can't. Only God can save you. And what He wants you to do is surrender to Him. But let me tell you, when you surrender to God to save you, everything else goes with it. Hello? Can we say amen to that? You, you can't surrender your soul to God and not surrender your life. You, you cannot surrender your heart to God and not surrender the job you're going to work. You cannot surrender to Jesus Christ to save you for all eternity and say, but I've I got to live my own way. You know what? You cannot surrender to God without surrendering what you will do in worship to Him. If you're going to worship God and it's going to be acceptable, it's going to be His way, not yours. You see, I want you to just picture, if you can, in your mind's eye, those vast multitudes coming into Jerusalem. I mean, this is far worse than Grand Central Rush Hour. It's, it's not just tens of thousands of people. It's as many as a million and three quarters, almost two million of people going into Jerusalem to live there for the next eight days during the Passover celebration. Stop and think about that crowd going in. Now we need to understand something. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Amen? Because that was God's plan. In order for Jesus to be crucified, he was going to have to be condemned. Isn't that true? In order for him to be turned over to the authority of Rome, there would have to be Jewish people that would bring charges that would stand the, um, the scrutiny of the Roman governor and be accepted and be turned over for, for him to sit in judgment. Had to happen. If no one there was to condemn Jesus, there'd be no crucifixion, would there? But I want to challenge you, we don't believe in a God that made people make the wrong choice. We believe in a God that allows freedom of determination of our eternal souls. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they had made their decision about Jesus long before he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. They had refused and rejected him as their Messiah and were never going to accept him. 
In fact, they taunted him on the cross and said, if you're really the Christ, come down and we'll believe on you. That wasn't true at all. If Jesus had pulled those nails out of his hands and stood in front of them, they said, nail them back! Because they already knew that they would never receive him. There were many that believed on Jesus. We'll see 120 of them gathered 50 days later on the day of Pentecost in an upper room where Jesus had celebrated the Last Supper with them. The the Lord's Supper is what we call it. There were 3,000 that were going to be added to him on the day of Pentecost. In a very short time, that church in Jerusalem would have been about 12,000 souls, 12,000 members. That's not a small church, my friend. But here's the point I'm trying to bring forth. You see, as Jesus rode that donkey through the eastern gate, the multitudes were praising him. Was it true worship or false worship? Both were there. As Jesus presented himself in the temple and taught the people, there was true authority, Jesus, false authority, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests. There was true truth, the teaching of Jesus. And there was false truth or lies being taught by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, etc. There was true salvation offered by Jesus Christ and a false salvation of works offered by the scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests. How many of you see the parallel of what was going on on Palm Sunday to what is happening in our society today. Even in our church today. I'm sure with these many people here, we have some people that don't believe a word I'm saying. Oh, he's just convinced of a bunch of lies. No. I believe that his words are truth. I believe this book is the final authority. And I believe the only way to have true salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you say amen to that? But the Bible talks about lots of people who say, Lord, Lord, and aren't saved. And my, my duty, my, my challenge to you on this day is you're going to be one of these two groups. You're either going to be standing there praising him for who he is and what Jesus is, or... You're going to be over here and saying, boy, it'd be nice if he'd straighten out all my problems and make my life better. I'd accept that kind of Savior. Jesus isn't that kind of Savior. Well, no, not well. The Bible is true. Therefore, If there's any disagreement with the Bible, the problem is me. 
you can't be that hard-nosed. You really believe that? Yeah. (laughs) But we live in a world where nobody... The word no doesn't mean no. Yes doesn't mean yes. Truth doesn't mean... uh, Nothing means anything anymore today, does it? When we signed the last mortgage on this church, it was... 30-some pages to explain how that we were going to assume a mortgage for $150,000. I mean, that's chicken feed. Our lawyers finally, our lawyer came back and said, listen, we cannot, he said, I can't in good conscience charge you for what this is costing me. He said, this is crazy. He said, I, I don't even know how to explain this. And uh, I said, well, I'm glad you're not going to charge me, but that's the world. Everybody can't be right, my friend. But I'll tell you who is. Jesus is. And if you'll accept him as your Savior, then your worship will be real, your authority will be his, your truth will be his. And your salvation will be his. The alternative is pretty scary. Because you have nothing real to hope in. I'll just hope and hope. Well, be my guest. But I want to challenge you. Hoping in a lie is going to end you up in the same place that everyone else that serves the devil is going. It's a place called hell. I don't want you to go there. I want you to find the truth that's in Jesus. But if you don't surrender at all, you haven't surrendered. You say, I'm not even sure how to surrender at all. Well, it gets real easy. What's the Bible say? Draw nigh to God, and He'll draw nigh to you. If you'll take the first little step, He'll take a big step. He will do what needs to be done if you'll just surrender. How many people found that true in your life? Say amen. And so the truth of Palm Sunday is that we can truly praise the Lord Jesus Christ in His way for who He is. He is the true authority. He is the truth, the way, the life. And He's the only true salvation that we have. And all God's people said, Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in prayer.